Welcome to The Atlantic Interview. I'm Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, and this week I spoke with Pete Souza. There's a chance you may not recognize his name, but you'd certainly recognize his photographs. Pete was the official White House photographer for Barack Obama, and he documented the president throughout his eight years in office. Recently, Pete came out with a book of photographs from that time entitled Obama, An Intimate Portrait. When I spend time interviewing President Obama or traveling with the president, Pete was always right there in the background, shooting away. Uh, He was everywhere, and yet also, as we discuss, kind of nowhere. He managed to make himself invisible even while documenting the presidency in all of its manifestations. So it was really a, a, a fun thing to sit down with Pete and hear what it was like to be an intimate observer of an entire presidency. Pete Souza, welcome to the Atlantic interview. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no, it's great. I haven't seen you since President Obama was president. Remember that period in American history when President Obama was president? It, it was not that long ago. No, it really? Are you sure about Sometimes that? Sometimes it feels like it was a decade ago. I, but. I'm not sure about that. I, I, I don't really recall it anymore. I, I've been eager to have you on this show for a, a number of reasons, in uh, part to just sort of talk about what it's like to have the ultimate bird's eye view, um, in part because I'm one of the people who's been lucky enough to be photographed by you with the president. And actually, it's my first question. This is going to seem extraordinarily specific. But here's one of the mysteries of your career or, or your job in the White House. Whenever you go into the Oval Office uh, to meet the president or really anywhere, um, uh, but particularly the Oval, uh, within a minute, you pop out of some secret door or secret closet. I can't figure it out, but you would always sort of pop out. And I never understood where were you hiding? Do you, did you just like, were you just positioned ready to go? Because you, it was sort of like, where did Pete Souza come from? How did that work? Well, what I tell people is the uh, cliff notes version of what I do, what I did for a job was uh, I would tag along with uh, President Obama from the time he came down from the residence in the morning until the time he left at night. And I was either in the Oval Office or just outside the Oval Office all day long. That's basically what I did. Did you have like sort of a perch where you can see what's going on? You had access to the schedule, obviously. But it was really, you know, the Oval Office um, is quite discombobulating uh, in part because it is an oval um, and in part because you can't tell where the doors are. Um, and I just was always, I would always, uh, turn to someone and say, where did he come from? And then you would disappear. It was, um, uh, a lot of people talk about a particular gift that you had, which was to make yourself invisible at key moments. Um, talk about that a little bit. How did you, how did you sort of become unobtrusive yet manage to photograph everything? I like to say I used a, a small footprint meeting. Uh, I used the quietest cameras that existed would not use a flash, would not use a, a motor drive, you know, rapid succession, and try to move about uh, so I wasn't interfering with what was taking place. If President Obama was having a one-on conversation like he did with you, I wouldn't necessarily stay in the whole meeting. I would just try to get my pictures and slowly disappear through one of those secret doors. Yeah. How many <laughs> secret doors are there? Well, there's three, four doors into the Oval. Uh, they're they're not really secret. Uh, well, they're secret when you're looking for the handle and you can't find it. Well, yeah. I mean, we've had people, you know, at the end of the meeting, uh, reach for the wrong door handle. Yeah, that was that lead, was me, yeah. among others. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, the it's exhausting though, right? I mean, one of the things, and I, I traveled on enough presidential trips. There's, um, you have photos in this wonderful book uh, from a, a trip I was on to Asia. You have a trip to Israel in the Middle East. Um, I, I, you were always around. I don't understand. Uh, I don't understand your ability to sort of uh, your endurance in that. Talk about that a little bit because you were there from morning to night. Yeah, I mean that's you know one thing I give my credit for my, give myself credit for is 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 my endurance. I took one sick day in eight years, and the only reason I took a sick day was because I had to go undergo anesthesia. Um, but you know there's there are days that are were like watching paint dry in in that not much was going on necessarily in, in terms of visually, and you know that was that was the challenge is to always be ready. I mean I I. Uh, early on, I made the determination that if I was not in the Oval Office, I was going to be right outside the Oval Office because with this particular president, you just never knew what was going to happen. Uh, there, it was kind of a fluid situation all day long. Yes, he had a schedule, but you know he might just pop out of the office and walk down to the chief of staff's office, or uh, you, know, you know. So I just was always hanging around. Was he ever annoyed by having you follow him everywhere? Uh, you know, he might have been annoyed the first few months, but I think he understood the value of having somebody document visually a, a presidency. And I, I think he appreciated the way I did it and, and not really being a nuisance. And knowing that, uh, you know, there were days when he I might give him a little more space because – you know, he might be in a bad mood or he might have a sinus infection and just sort of like it's more intuitive than than anything else. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you remember any particular bad days? Um, I mean, there are, it depends on your your definition of bad. I mean, a really bad day was, of course, when he found out about the uh, Sandy Hook shootings. Uh, but but that was also, you know, historic. So I. That that was not a yeah, problem. Yeah, you took a very famous photograph of being of uh, the president being briefed by John and, Brennan, and and he was uh, he he understood that that uh, I, I needed to be around for for those kind of bad days. But there were bad days when I don't know. I can't even think. Like he he didn't show his his bad moods to people publicly, but I could sort of tell. And I, I can't think of anything specifically. Well, here's a funny story. This guy was notorious for being a disciplined eater. So in his back— right, the seven almonds controversy. Yeah, so in the, in the dining room, he had these three jars with almonds and, I don't know, three different kinds of nuts. So I had the, I had the idea on one April 1st. I got the valets to dump out all the nuts and put in M&Ms because he never ate candy. And uh, as soon as he walked into the office, I could tell he was in a really bad mood. And I quickly went back to the valet and said, we got to put the nuts back. <laughs> well, he's very sensitive to the nuts. You know, I remember him getting mad when, when people were talking about that story where he ate nine almonds a- after dinner. And um, I remember hearing him say that uh, sometimes it would be 10 or 12. He didn't actually count them. He was very frustrated by the telling of that story. <laughs> the um, Talk about – the West Wing a little bit. You said that sometimes, and this is hard to believe in one sense, sometimes uh, 
having your job was like watching paint dry. Um, there is this quality of the West Wing that a lot of people don't understand, which is that it's, it's very, very quiet. Talk about something that surprised you when you started to go work in the West Wing. Well, it's not like the West Wing TV show. It's the opposite. Yeah. It's small. I mean, if you go, you know, my office was uh, one floor down from the old office, and it was the old barbershop. And you could, you know, barely fit two people in there. It, it's it's smaller than people think. It's older than people think. It It's, <laughs> you know, there's no wireless. It, it It's, you know, everything kind of centers around the Oval Office. But everybody else's office is really kind of small, except right. for the chief of staff's office. Right, right. Let's talk about some of the uh, photographs in this book. Uh, the first question I ask as an editor is how you possibly culled down uh, to this selection. It's a big book, but nevertheless, it represents a tiny fraction of the photographs you took. Talk about the process a little bit of getting to this. Uh, well, to, uh, uh, to start out, I would say that because uh, we were the administration that used social media in a way that no other, other administration had done before, it just so happened that a lot of these tools – uh, became available during the Obama administration. Instagram didn't even exist until 2010. So as a result, a lot of these pictures had been made public in some capacity before. So that was the core photographs that I began with, ones that we had made public in some capacity. And, th and there were thousands. And then um, I, I was trying to choose photographs. The book is done chronologically. So you sort of see... Um, the, the flow of the presidency from 2009 right up until January 20th of last year. And I was trying to show pictures that told you something about his presidency or told you something about him as a, a human being. What, what was he like? And then I would also weave in some of the important historical moments as well as trying to set the scene with some aesthetic moments of the presidency as a whole, like pictures of Air Force One, of the White House. And that was challenging because there, there were so many pictures to choose from. Um, the, the, the challenge was just trying to get it down to, you know, 350 pages, I think, is what right. we have. One of the – and this is a critique of the administration, the Obama administration, not you, but one of the critiques was – you got all the acts as a photographer, uh, but your former colleagues in the press uh, were restricted. And it is fair to say that there's no photograph among these among these photos um, that is unflattering of the president. Um, have you thought about the leap that you made from being a journalist to being a chronicler of of a presidency for the president? You know, I, I, I met Barack Obama when he was uh, elected to the Senate. I was working for the Chicago Tribune. And uh, spent a lot of time with them, especially in 2005 and 2006, as a member of the press, right. working for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, and, and, you know, the moment I walked into the Oval Office as the, the chief White House photographer, I didn't, like, change how I made pictures. The process is still the same. I'm still photographing in the same manner. Yes, the White House... Uh, it, you're not photographing for a daily newspaper, so you're not editing to fit a certain story. You know, I was thinking more long-term of 
making timeless photos, historical photos. But the process of me photographing isn't any different than it was as a, as a photojournalist for the Chicago Tribune. Do you think that the press was kept at bay too much by the press operation, by the public relations operation at the White House? I mean, I think that's a, uh, a legitimate complaint. It, it happens every administration. Ironically, the, the current administration, they're not getting as many complaints because the current president loves to have the, the entire press pool come in. And so he can, you know, sign some executive order or things like that. I mean, President Obama much preferred having a, a, a solo photographer, which we did several dozens of times, have an individual photographer sort of tag along with me for the day or do a solo interview like he did with you. He much preferred those than having the whole contingent of press come in. Coming back to this point, it's a minor point, but the quietness that uh, people who were in the West Wing over the Obama administration felt, that's also a kind of a reflection of his disciplined, orderly, quiet personality, uh, I have to think. By the way, that's probably the nicest thing you've ever said about Donald Trump, but I'm not even sure it counts as nice. Um, <laughs> you think it would be fun to photograph Donald Trump? Um, Can you imagine, put aside your feelings about Donald Trump, which uh, you've made clear, could you imagine it being an exciting job right now to be the White House photographer? Uh, no. Why? Um, trying to be uh, delicate. In what no, you I don't, say. This is a very indelicate podcast. <laughs> um, because it doesn't appear to me that, uh, uh, that, that, that much access is given to the White House photographer. So just from a technical standpoint, yeah. you're not getting in there. Um, I don't want to ask you the obvious question, which is what is your favorite photograph you made of the president or the presidency? Um, let me frame it this way. Which of these photographs do you think will be remembered 100 years from now? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, obviously the, uh, the bin Laden photo, watching the bin Laden raid in the Situation Room, although – that picture to me is historic and yet is I wouldn't consider it one of my favorites. It's, it's probably my, my best known picture. I, I, the picture that's on the back cover of little Jacob Philadelphia uh, kind of touching the head of the president um, that was taken actually early on. It was in May of 09. Those you are, knew that was a moment. I actually didn't know that was a moment because it happened so fast. I have one frame of that. It, you know, it's so unexpected. And I didn't see the picture because, you know, you can look on the back of your camera. But I, I'm so busy that oftentimes I don't really get to peruse my pictures until the end of the day. And that's, that's one picture that I didn't know what I had until the end of the day. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, okay, this, this is special. Why, did you know it was special because you've been following Obama around for long enough that you knew his – unique status as the first African-American president um, meant so much to so many people? What, what, I mean, because it's not, no offense, it's not your most artfully composed photograph. It was done completely on the fly. What, 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 what made, when you looked at it, what said to you, oh, wait a second, this is, this is capturing uh, an essential truth about this historical moment? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because uh, a photographer always wants to have the perfect composition, framing, lighting, moment, all those things that come together. And in some ways, the, the, the 
perfectness, if there's such a word, of this we'll composition and framing make it more special to me. I mean, the, the, the reason it works as a photograph is you can uh, both see uh, young Jacob's hand touching his head and you can see Jacob's eyes looking at his head. Um, if I had been, you know, six inches in either direction, it might not have worked. Hmm. Um, but I think it, it resonates with a lot of people for two reasons. One, you got a young African-American kid uh, touching the head of the president of the United States who looks like him. That's one. And two, I think it tells you something about Barack Obama that even though he was president of the United States at the behest of a five-year-old kid, he would go ahead and bend over and let this kid touch his head. That he didn't take himself that seriously. Uh, I'm not sure that that would happen, for instance, today. Right. Well, <laughs> that hair is more complicated, uh, for one thing, on the on the next president than than the previous. The um, as artistic composition, I'm curious to know. I mean, there's that photograph I love. I, I happen to. Be there, so it really resonated with me at Yad Vashem, where I was in the, the pool, light. I was yeah. in the pool that day when um, they they were standing out over the hills of Jerusalem. Um, there's a there's an Air Force One photograph that's that's haunting. Um, but let me ask you let me ask it this way. Um, again, I'm not going to ask you to name your favorite photograph here, but I, I want to ask you about the the photograph you're most proud of for aesthetic reasons. Something that that represents the highest form of of your art of all these. 350 or so photographs. That's sort of like, uh, you know, asking someone, okay, you got five kids, which is your favorite. It, it, that's so hard for me uh, to, to choose. Um, I, I, I did. All right, give me the top three. Okay, so I'll, this is just a, a guess because I don't know if I can remember all the ones in the book. Uh. But the, the, the one uh, of... Uh, Air Force One leaving Seattle one early morning in the fog. And I saw the picture happen as we were arriving in that. I, you know, I was in the motorcade and it was just this magical foggy morning. And as soon as the motorcade stopped, I ran to the front of the plane as far away as I could get because I, I, I knew you needed to be far away to get the effect of the fog. Uh, so I love that picture because I think it says something not about President Obama directly, but it says something about the presidency. You see the motorcade. You see him at the top of the stairs waving. So that that would be one. Another one is you, you mentioned this one uh, from uh, Israel. They were overlooking the city, I believe, right? Mm, I think so. And it's taken from behind. There's a whole group of people, including Netanyahu and Perez, I believe. Yeah, Shimon Perez and Netanyahu, uh, the chief rabbi, I think. Yeah, and at one point, the president just sort of like raised his hands to say something, and the light just happened to magically fall on his hands. And I saw it happen. I, I think I have one frame of that. It happened so quick. But aesthetically, I love that picture too. Um, another one that maybe I'm drawn more to the circumstance than the actual picture is uh, the day that Supreme Court upheld same-sex marriage. And we, meaning the White House, lit up the north side of the White House in rainbow colors. It was on a Friday night. And the staff uh, did not want to go home. So everybody was just outside the north portico 
uh, just kind of taking it all in. I think some people had champagne out there. Mm. And the 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 uh, light had just gone down for the evening, so there was still a little blue in the sky. And then all these rainbow colors around the White House. So those are three that come to mind off the top of my head. Presidency is fairly impossible job. The emotional bandwidth, forget the intellectual bandwidth that one needs to be president, but the emotional bandwidth. You went with the president to Newtown. He had to comfort 26 separate families, give a talk. He missed, I think, one of his daughter's performances uh, at school in order to do this. Um, talk about a, a moment that might have been too much for anyone to bear and how you how you bear those things. You're you're documenting uh, moments of extreme trauma. You're in Walter Reed with the families of um, extremely wounded, uh, terribly wounded soldiers. Talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's most of the time I can keep my emotions together in the moment because I'm worrying about so many things technically and compositionally and, and so on and so forth. Uh, Newtown, and, and not not the day of the shootings, uh, but two days later when we did go to Connecticut and he did meet with all these families. I have to say that was probably the one time where I had a hard time keeping my emotions in check. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Sasha's annual dance recital was at night and he could not go because it was out of Saturday night. But he went to the dress rehearsal in the afternoon. Uh, and sat in the auditorium. He was the only parent watching the dress rehearsal. At at, at one point, uh, this young dance troupe had just finished their performance, and they filed into the auditorium, which was uh, essentially empty. And I was down front taking pictures of Sasha because she was dancing. And these young little kids came in and sat, like, right in one row right in front of me. There were about 20 or 25 of them. And I'm looking at these kids, and I finally tapped this one little girl on the shoulder, and I said, how old are you guys? And she looked up at me, and she said, we're six. And that's when I lost it, because I was thinking to myself, this whole row is what just got wiped out in Newtown. Um, And then later, a few hours later, as he's meeting with these families privately in in, uh, Newtown, was just it, it was it was just too much to bear. You've got the worst possible thing that ever happened in each of these families' lives, and two days later, they're meeting the president of the United States in you know just the worst circumstance. Yeah. Go to the Bin Laden photo for a minute. Address the one quote-unquote old controversy in that photo, what Hillary Clinton was doing with her hand at that moment. And if you knew when you released that photograph that people would interpret it the way it was interpreted, which is that she was shocked by something she was seeing on the screen. You know, it's, it's, it's fun. I, I talked to Hillary about this uh, a couple of days later when uh, uh, they were trying to determine what, what, why she was reacting the way she did. You know, first it was that she had a cold, she had a sneeze. She couldn't really remember. She didn't even know that I was in the room, which is meaning I was doing a pretty good job of, you know, being quiet and unobtrusive. Um, but so I, as, a, as an exercise, I went back. I shot 102 pictures during the actual raid. 
because uh, we were in that room for, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes. And, uh, and, and through uh, looking at the pictures, Hillary had her hand up to her face and about like 15 of the pictures. Huh. Bob Gates had his hand up to his face and about 10. The VP had his hand up to his face and a few. And it was sort of like that with everybody because there was so much anxiety and tension in that room. And in editing a picture, you're always trying to find what's the best frame. And when you have that many people in a room, inevitably, somebody's going to be blanking or looking away for an instant. And I chose what I thought was the, the, the best frame, had not even thought about that people were going to make a big deal out of Hillary having her hand to her face. Um, kind of presage the way she was yeah. interpreted generally. But uh, it, it – it, it, you know, and and I and I think that people unfairly uh, made that a big deal. I don't think that was a big deal. The most remarkable aspect of that photograph to me, well, there's two. The, the the second, which I'll get to, is the fact that you were in the room at all, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But the the first is the position of the president and the body language of the president. Uh, he's off to the side. He's in a chair. He's not standing there. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt style ordering the raid. He's he's very receding in a way. Talk a, talk about that. I think that's the quality that makes the photograph memorable. That the 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 president did not put himself in the center of the action, even though he was the action. You know the uh, the Situation Room is comprised of three conference rooms. Uh, most of his meetings were held in the big conference room, which was across the hall. They had the communications link to the raid set up in this tiny little conference room. And they were afraid to switch the link to the big conference room because they, they thought they might lose the signal. So everybody piled into that little room. They didn't know the president was going to be there while the raid was taking place. That was not something they had expected, and he wanted to be there. Uh, General Webb, the guy that you see seated at the head of the table – was on a laptop. I believe he was in direct communication with Bill McRaven, who was running the raid from Afghanistan. And he stood up when he saw the president walk in to give up his chair. And the president said, you stay right where you are. I'll just pull up a chair next to you. So that's how, he be, that's how it happened that he was se seated next to General Webb and not at the head of the table. Nobody in that room besides General Webb was discomfited by the fact that the president was so uh, off to the side. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think so at all. It's it's just it's it's just un, it's unusual presidential behavior. This is not a criticism. It might be a compliment, which is to say, the man is comfortable in his own skin and and comfortable in the hierarchy and comfortable doing what he did. Well, I think I think um, you know every everybody in that room except for General Webb was not a participant in what was taking place. They were observers. You know, their decisions had already been made. And now all they could do was observe. And, um, and I think that it, for, for President Obama, that was a, a human decision. It wasn't a presidential decision on where to sit. Right. That's just his decision as a human being. There were, there's one participant and a bunch of observers, and you were observing the observers. I, this struck me soon after I saw the, the photograph that there were deputy secretaries of defense. There were people in the CIA. There were a bunch of people across the national security complex who had no idea what was going on. But you knew what was going on. 
Did that ever strike you as as uh, kind of an oddity of your job that your that your forced proximity to the president meant that you were cleared for the highest level secrets? Yeah, I mean the um, I have to admit that th- that day it was you know <laughs> I was pretty awed by what was taking place, knowing that um, this is a huge day in American history, and it could have gone the other way. It could have gone south. I mean. Uh, they didn't know for sure if Bin Laden was there. They the helicopter did crash, <laughs> right? Coming in and it, it, but, um, but there are other times too. I mean, I the the, the news of that raid became public, uh, what eight hours later or something like that, and everybody knew what had happened. So I would know, you know, before most people did. But there are times too, like when before we open uh, relations with Cuba. Um, I mean, I covered, you know, multiple meetings in the Situation Room, I think going back almost a year. So I knew, you know, a year in advance that that we were trying to do this with Cuba. Um, so those are the kind of things that you just uh, – the reason why you're given top secret clearance is so you can be there when they're discussing meetings like that. Right. Right. Talk about photographing Joe Biden for a minute. There's a wonderful sequence of photographs in this book of uh, the president and the vice president talking. And it reminded me of that LBJ series with Richard yeah. Russell or as Mansfield, I think, yeah. where LBJ is, is histrionic and, and leaning in and leaning out and doubled over. Um, Joe Biden in that in that sequence is playing the LBJ role. Um What's it? What was it like to work with the two of them? I mean, one was ebullient and one was self-contained. I, I love Joe Biden. I, I uh, he was an, another great subject to photograph because of the things you just said, and he was also kind of a uh, uh, close talker and was very uh, energetic with his hands and his emotions. Um. But but I, he he was just um, one of the most hardworking and sincere guys you'll ever meet in politics. Uh, I I just I, I think the world of him. So when he's president, you'll go back to the White House. Uh, I think I've you know I think eight years was enough. So the um, talk a, a little bit about how you portray. Uh, I'm looking at it right now. Uh, a, a wonderful photograph of Donald Trump. All you can – the only reason you know it's Trump apart from the caption obviously is the back of his head and a little bit of hair that you can tell is genuinely his. Um, tell me about that day. Donald Trump comes into the White House. Yeah, it was pretty surreal. Um, you know, the election didn't go the way we wanted. It didn't go the way uh, the vast majority of the American people expected. Um and yet, it, this the uh, you know people spoke, and he was duly elected to be the next president of the United States. The challenge, in terms of my book, was uh, you know this is obviously a book that um, most people that buy it, purchase it, are going to be Obama fans, and so I was debating whether to even include a picture of the incoming president. Um, and I actually consulted a couple of my predecessors uh, who had also done photo books, Eric Draper, who had done Bush's photo book, and uh, David Kennerly, who had done Ford's 
Uh, and in both instances, they had included a picture of the uh, incoming president. So I felt that I needed to, too, except I didn't go with the traditional photo. I went with, you know, one that was a little more subtle. Subtle, but also suggesting a kind of interloper in the in the Oval Office. No? The great thing about photography is that Everybody looks at a photograph a different way. <laughs> we can end it right there, actually. <laughs> That's our show for this week. My thanks again to Pete Souza. His book is called Obama, An Intimate Portrait. We'll share all of the photos we mentioned on the show on our website. Just go to theatlantic.com slash interview. This episode was produced and edited by Kevin Townsend. The executive producer of Atlantic Podcast is Catherine Wells. If you like the show, rate it and share it with friends. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you again soon.